God's Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. As the circumstances of the world become more extreme and confusing, we must tune our ears to the voice of our Heavenly Father. His revelation is essential to navigate the road ahead. Welcome to Current Affairs with Sam Soul. Now, in declaring enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, God defined the outcome. So it isn't just that there will be uh, uh, continuing enmity, but there is a victory associated with the outcome. It's important to know these things, otherwise you'd be terrorized. And this is why it's so imperative that we ground these things in the ancient scriptures. These are the most ancient of sayings from God. So what then is that outcome that God prophesied contemporaneous with declaring the enmity between the seeds, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent? He said, He shall bruise your head. God speaking of the seed of the woman, calling him a he, he shall bruise your head. That is a statement of utter, thorough and complete pacification, a military term. When the head, when, when someone's foot is on the head of his enemy, that is the military reference to pacification. You're going to be judged as being incapable of forming a cogent resistance to one who has defeated you utterly. A foot on the head is a picture of abject subjection to the rule of a superior. I want you to get that picture because there is not going to be any half measures, no negotiation. That is why Paul speaks of it at the end of the book of Romans when he says, be excellent at what is good he speaks to the Roman, the church in Rome, be excellent at what is good, be innocent of evil, and the God of peace shall soon crush Satan underneath your feet. That is why at the end of the book of Ephesians, in the sixth chapter, when he's applying the power of God, the working of the mighty strength of God, which Paul spoke of in the first chapter, he chooses to apply it in context of this very warfare. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And one of the first of these demonstrations of the power of God 
is having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The Hebrew term for peace, shin, lamed, wa, and mem, the four characteristics, in the aggregate signify to destroy the authority that establishes disorder. So John will tell us in 1 John chapter 3, he will say, the Son of God was revealed, the seed of the woman is called the Son of God. That transfer takes place in the Jordan River. When the Son of Man is buried in the water, symbolically buried in baptism, and the Son of God comes up out of the water, a type and shadow of the Son of God arising according to promise. And God said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So the indication of the Son of God, who now is a spiritual man consisting of many members, according to 1 Corinthians 12, the body of Christ, uh, like the human body, is comprised of many members. And whereas the human body is described in 1 Corinthians 12 as eyes and hands and feet and familiar body parts like that, it also describes the body of Christ in terms of the functional giftings uh, attributable uh, or in each of the designed parts and saying that God placed the members in the body as He foreordained. So a natural man as a type and shadow of a spiritual man. All of which tell us that this war, this war was to come to a final end with the bruising of the head of the serpent and in the process the bruising of the heel of the sun. So we will have sufferings and trials in this life because they relate to the reigning in of the soul, the restoration of sight from the soul to the spirit. Where man walked with God initially, he saw everything according to the spirit. His spiritual eyes were opened. When he walked away from God, the eyes of his soul were opened and he walked in the blindness of his own imagination. When he has been restored, when he has been restored, his spirit will see again. So he will not see by the seeing of the eye, he will not hear by the hearing of the ear, he will see by discernment of the Spirit of God. That is why this is so imperative that we understand you can't figure these things out by an appeal to your Twitter followers. So he said to the woman, uh, to the woman I said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you will bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Here the implication by the introduction of rule is your desire will be for your husband's rule, but 
he's going to rule over you. Now, so God first tells the serpent that his judgment is the Son of God coming as the seed of the woman will crush his head. There will be a final victory. It's not going to go on in an endless way. This war is not designed to be a war in perpetuity. This war will end. And it will end when Christ is formed in a spiritual man. This plays perfectly into and is accurately aligned with the original intent of God when He said, I'm going to make a man in in our image after our own likeness. And this man in the image and likeness of God is going to be the exact representation, the exact representation of the invisible God upon the earth. He will be configured according to the standard of Christ and the process of his configuration will be that his character, C-H-A-R-A-K-T-U-R, and here I'm speaking of the book of Hebrews chapter 1, image and likeness, his character is that of refined metal being stamped into coinage. And because the metal is refined by fire, you bruise your heel is the, is the saying of Genesis, that the, the, the taint of man's giving in to the serpent, to the deception of the serpent, just like the woman said, that taint is going to be cured by the refiner's fire. Anybody who tells you that as a believer you don't have to suffer is preaching another gospel to you. I've heard some say, if you're suffering, it is because you did something to offend God. That may be true, but much of the suffering of a believer has nothing to do with offending God. Has to do with being refined because part of the prophecy was the serpent will bruise the heel. The walk of the believer has to be cured from the errant straying footsteps of Adam and Eve walking in the light of their own understanding. That has to be cured by the soul being brought back under the rule of the Spirit. This curative process is described in Scripture as fiery trials of many kind, spoken in the book of 1 Peter. Think it not strange that you should suffer fiery trials of many kinds, but when you do, the Spirit of glory and of Christ rests on you. Anyone who tells you that as a believer you have signed up for a life of 
ease and peace is lying to you. Your best life is not in the gratification of every whim you can think of. God is not obligated to give you the desires of your unregenerate heart. In fact, He won't. When your desires line up with His, then it is His pleasure to give you the desires of your heart because your heart and His heart, your affections have been set on things above, not on things of this world. He will give you everything necessary for this life and He'll even give that to you according to the abundance required for you to serve in the capacities to which He has called you. But God doesn't just give you wealth to give you wealth, that's a sure way of distracting you. God gives you the wealth commensurate with the purposes for which He has called you. So if God has called you to be a ruler amongst His people, to set forth the standard of divine rectitude, then your economy will go with that, will match that. If on the other hand God has called you to be a supplier in His kingdom, your economy will reflect the abundance of resources but it doesn't come separate and apart from the instruction to give on every occasion. Hoarding for those with the gift of giving is hiding what what talent God gave you according to the expressions of the parable of the talents. Similarly, if God means to adorn you with physical beauty, clothe yourself with the humility of divine characteristics so you may appear in the beauty of His holiness and not in the trite, banal and passing reference to human human beauty. That fades as your youth does, but a gentle spirit endures forever. These things have all been said. So, everyone who pursues God is going to experience fiery trials. That's the bruising of the heel. And when when the God of peace has worked the refiner's fire in you and your character bears the stamp and the imprint of His image and likeness, then whatever you do will triumph routinely, effortlessly, casually, normally over the works of the devil. In this life. So there was always going to be conflict between the woman, the seed of the woman, and the seed of the serpent, but that conflict had a final resolution. 
We're going to routinely defeat Satan in the course of our lives and ultimately as the body of Christ we will not only be given judgment in favour of the saints but that judgment will include the destruction of the beast. That's how it comes out. This promise here in Genesis 15 is lived out, spoken of and referenced in the book, throughout the book of Revelation. This is what the book of Revelation summarizes the coming forth of the righteous of the earth, the seed of the woman, the assembled corpus Christi, the assembled body of Christ, the naos of God, the dwelling place of God, the place wherein the power and glory of God are both perfected and displayed. That's the end of the matter. But also, it's where the deception of Satan is drawn up into its most fearsome rendition to entrap the hearts of mankind who fear for provision and protection. That's why this beast treads down and devours the whole earth. There are those who dwell in heaven and there are those who dwell in the earth. The dwellers of the earth find their identity in the sweat of their brow. The dwellers in heaven, even if they live on the earth, we are We're in the world but we are not of the world. Their economy is above. So finally when God said to Adam, three, to the woman it was pain in childbirth and the desire for her husband's rule but being subject to her husband. Then to Adam He said, because you've heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake." You know, God didn't curse Adam. Cursed is the ground for your sake. It's because of you that the earth is cursed. So what happens when the new Adam, the last Adam, comes? their economy is to be redeemed because it was cursed for His sake. Cursed is the ground for your sake. It's His disobedience that carries with it the curse. But when we shall turn again to righteousness, the ground will not be cursed. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return." Now, 
this curse, this curse upon the ground, actually introduced a different economy. On the seventh day, God rested, invited man to enter into that rest and he was in that rest until he looked away, he stepped away from the presence of God. So the presence of God is required as the surrounding environment for the economy of the seventh day. In that economy, every tree, every tree is your inheritance. God will allow, God has ordained the earth to support the suns in an economy devoid of sweat, devoid of toil. And we are not limited to the sweat of our brow. We are allowed to transcend the economy of the sweat of the brow. And one critical note, you will remember verse 18, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Jesus wore a crown of thorns on the cross. He wore a crown of thorns. Why? Well, thorns and thistles. Uh, we live here, I live here in the American West, and one of the plants in the American West is called the tumbleweed. Uh, its proper name is the Russian thistle. Thistles are essentially weeds, thorns and thistles. Um, the word in Hebrew is dadar. D-A-R-D-A-R. And it corresponds uh, in the parables of Jesus to Dardanelles, tares among the wheat. Thistles are a form of weed that approximates, that looks like productive useful grain. Rapeseed is a more common designation of, the, of this. What is the significance of thorns and thistles? Why did Jesus end up wearing a crown of thorns? Because you see, thorns and thistles represent encroachments upon the domain the productive, profitable domain that God had put under the rule of man. 
It's a reduction in the size and scope of your inheritance. The sons of God have a clerou, an inheritance. A clerou, where we get the word clergy, is the term for an allotment. If you have travelled extensively in the country of Cuba, and one of the phenomena that is striking to me about arable land in Cuba, the land in Cuba is quite, quite fertile, but because of the government's use of land, it's not, it's not all productive, not much of it in fact is productive. The, the land is undeveloped and along the highway for miles and miles, going down from, from Havana to um, Santiago de Cuba, miles and miles of highway, there are thorn bushes which in Cuba are called marabou, M-A-R-A-B-O-U, marabou, thick thorny hedges because the land was not properly cultivated, the land could not be properly cultivated uh, because of the economic policies of what is an agricultural nation. There was a time when Cuba produced so much of uh, sugarcane and tobacco and all other forms of crop production, agricultural production, massive agricultural production. But the mismanagement of the nation by its government for the last 70 years has caused the land to go from being extremely productive to just spottily productive and the thorns have invaded. The marabou are everywhere. Thorns, you see, and thistles shrink the scope of your inheritance as a son of God. And that's why Jesus bore wore a crown of thorns to redeem the inheritance of the sons. Now, as we go forward into the next chapter and we discuss Cain and Abel, we now see the operational functionality of the two economies. What else are we going to see? We're going to see the functioning of the sweat of the brow and we're going to see the offering of the Lamb. What are these two things indicative of? The sweat of the brow represents going backward to toil. God rested on the seventh day. God was at work on the sixth day. So there's an economy of work that now has been reverted to. Adam reverted 
to the economy of the sixth day. God put him out of the economy of the seventh day because of his choice, but God didn't put everybody out of the economy of the seventh day because Abel, Abel is in the economy of the seventh day. How is that so? How does this contrast with the economy of the sixth day? And what and why is there an inevitable conflict and the first shedding of blood? The conflict between the economy of the sixth day, which always wars with those who are in the economy of the seventh day. Because you see, condemnation comes to the sixth day and those who dwell in the sixth day by those who remain in the seventh day. Men love darkness rather than light when their deeds are evil. We'll unpack that and look at Cain who is described as a son of the devil and a type of the Antichrist. Almost seems too good to be true. The scriptures speak so plainly about these things. But come, we'll see it when we continue these discussions. I'm Sam Solon. We'll see you then. Bye bye.